Welcome back to the Nomadic Gregors podcast. I'm Anna. I'm Cam. And we are here to talk about international living, international traveling, and life as expats. We are going to focus today on how people become expats, but of course, since our expertise is international teaching, we'll lean a little bit more heavily on that. We'll lean a lot more heavily on that because <laughs> the other pathways is just sort of our generic research. So we can give you some good expat, good expat information via teaching, but we'll talk about a few other ways that we've met people and what they do when they come abroad as well. So Before we go any further, remember that you can find the Nomadic Gregors podcast here on YouTube. Liking, subscribing, and sharing is always welcome. Please leave us your comments if there are topics that you want us to cover. But we are also now on Spotify. You can find us as Nomadic Gregors. Let's get going. All right. Why don't you start? Well, I mean, there are kind of like the unofficial ways in which people become expats. And I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, from the perspective of someone who grew up in the Caribbean and would see these random people from other places that lived in beach towns and stuff. And you ask them and it's like, oh, how did you end up here? Well, I just came on vacation and I never left. And sometimes those are people that retired and just, you know, found their place. And other times it's really people that just came on vacation and never left. And sometimes they do odd jobs. Sometimes they freelance in their home countries, but um, that does require at times kind of coming and going a little bit more often, which is not ideal and not something that we personally recommend because it's very time consuming and kind of technically illegal, <laughs> but it is a way that people become expats. Sometimes people just go on vacation and they don't leave. All right, so let's back up a moment. So you went into a story, so let's back up a little bit. So one thing that people do is they go on vacation, this is what her point was, I think, is they go on vacation and they don't leave. Yeah. So, just wanted to clear that up for them. Yeah. Okay. So, they go on vacation, they don't leave. And that just depends on where you are. It's not illegal. It just depends on how long you're there. Also, it depends on when, whether you're working for a local employer or not. If, you're, Some, if you don't have a work visa, and that's required. So, as you said, if you're just there on vacation and you don't leave, it means you're on there usually on a tourist visa, depending on the country. And people will do what's called visa runs. They will leave the country when their tourist visa is up, to come back. Now, some countries do have laws against this. Uh, I think maybe a place, I think, I want to say I've heard Indonesia. Bali's tightening up on, on freelancers and people that are coming into Bali and just kind of doing visa runs to go back and forth. Um, so that's changing a little bit. The culture of, of Bali is changing because of that because Indonesia is getting a little bit more stringent with their visas, yes. And I've met people that do that in China as well. Um, and as she said, we don't advocate for this. It, it's a headache. Uh, we've never done it. Well, I would never do that. Not personally, you know. And it, but again, some countries it works a little bit differently. When we worked in the Dominican, when I worked there as a non-citizen, I was there not illegally, but they didn't have a work visa. So each time I left the country, I would have to pay a fine. And that fine, for whatever reason, because it's the Dominican, never stayed the same. Um, so, you know, just be aware that depending on where you are, visas may be less regulated, but for the most part, they're going to be fairly well regulated, especially in um, countries that maybe aren't as developing. So, yeah, so all of that is to say that it is something that happens, but of course, if that's something that 
crosses your mind, you have to know that you're going to have to be prepared for unpredictable visa rules and kind of a time-consuming process of going back and forth so that you can reset your tourist visa. There are a lot of people that do that and then they find a way to stay legally. They might get a job working as a bartender in an expat area. Um, and these are people of any age. They might... Or teaching. Um, they might go in and teach, well, usually English at this point. Yeah. Um, they might marry someone local. Uh, it just really depends. They might not stay in one country. They might go from Indonesia to Thailand to Malaysia to Singapore to the Philippines and spend a whole year just traveling back and forth between these countries, which is fine too if you're okay with that more nomadic lifestyle where you don't have a set uh, place to hang up your coat each night, as they say. So if you do want to just sort of go and not come back, it's an option. Excuse me. But, you know, people do that in Europe, too. They'll just backpack along and hitchhike and go where the wind takes them. Well, in, in Europe, at least for European Union citizens, it's a lot easier to do that since they have freedom of movement and they're allowed to move from country to country and register and, and get jobs. Um, in South America, countries that are Mercosur members, you are also allowed to do that. You have about two years um, to find a job and become a resident, but initially you can just go and get started and, and, and stay. Well, yeah, but even non-EU citizens do that. Because as an American, you have a ninety-day uh, entry as a as a tourist into into Europe. Um, so they'll just leave the Schengen zone and pop back in. And now with the UK no longer being in the EU, that could be a short ride out of the EU and back in. Right. Assuming you know COVID restrictions and all of that stuff. So that's one way that we do see people. You know, in her country, you see a lot of kiteboarders and people like that. Younger people who just say, you know what, I'm just going to come and surf and travel six months out of the year and maybe they go back and work but sometimes they go to other countries when the conditions change from favorable to unfavorable in the Dominican to somewhere else and that's just sort of what they do I don't know where they get money from and how they do it but again they usually end up working odd jobs bartenders uh, maybe at a hostel and you know to come back on the concept of legality she said, not only visas, but a lot of these people, when they do work, end up getting paid under the table. So be mindful, too, that not only you may be somewhere illegally, but your job, should you choose to take one, might be illegal as well. Yeah, and so now we're going to kind of move away from that concept of going somewhere and never leaving and kind of winging it as you go to um, the concept of digital nomads, which is kind of a new idea of expatriate that took a lot more force during the pandemic since a lot of companies and offices offered the opportunity to work remotely. Many countries kind of jumped on that opportunity and started offering what are called digital nomad visas. So if you work remotely, you usually can get a one year visa or so and you can go there, live for a time and you know get to experience the culture a little bit more deeply. Um, some examples of countries that did that, Barbados was one of the first ones to kind of jump on that wagon. Croatia did it. Um, I think Georgia was trying to figure it out in a more structured way. But it's certainly an option and in a way, um, and it was another way in which countries kind of tried to kick back tourism after the pandemic. But let's break that down, because there's two different ways of being a digital nomad. 
So it could be you work for a company where you work remotely, in which case you have a set employer that you're working for all the time and they just don't care where you are. Exactly. But a lot of times what people do, especially now, is they're doing freelance work on different sites from like freelancer.com, from Fiverr, Upwork. From Upwork, even sites like LinkedIn and like Indeed have like a remote search, remote job search option. So those are a little bit different than if you work for, say, Google, and they say, all right, we don't really need you in office. You can go work where you want. Or if you're a consultant and it doesn't matter and all your work is online, if you are a, you know, whatever. There's a big difference there, and that's one of the things we'll talk about in a little bit as well, is what comes with those differences. Yeah, of course. And so if you have a set employer and they just give you the option to work remotely, that will, of course, come with probably the same benefits that you would get if you were in an office. Maybe some things might change because you're working remotely and you're not commuting and that sort of thing. But if you're freelancing, of course, there are things that you're going to have to figure out like healthcare. Yeah, and that's a big cost, especially if you don't have regular jobs. You know, it's you want to make sure you have enough saved up for those rainy days because those jobs aren't always going to come through. Whereas, as she said, you know, if you are working for a company full time, they're probably going to pay you benefits. Um, and if they're not, I would probably be looking for another employer. You know, if I if I'm working full time for somebody that's not an hourly ba- hourly wage based job, I want benefits. I want to know that I can go to the doctor and be fine. And I, you know. That's fair. That's fair. It's definitely something to think about, especially since in many countries the biggest way um, in which the health system operates is the national service or the public health care and if you are a non-resident you're not going to have access to that so healthcare would be a lot more expensive for you it'd be more expensive well it depends like sometimes doctor visits can still be cheaper having been to the doctor in europe once or twice for the most part it's not terribly expensive Okay. Mostly because you're not going to a big hospital like in the U.S. Fair enough. You're usually going to smaller private practices, things like that. I can't speak to emergencies because I've never done that. But I've never been and you don't see these massive hospitals the same way you do in the United States. It doesn't mean they're not there. They do exist. But you go to the U.S. and you go to a college campus and you see a hospital with, I don't know, 10 floors and thousands of rooms multiple wings multiple wings and that's those exist but they're far less common and you know most times people might have a private practice just out of their home for example so it's not cheap but it might still be cheaper than the u.s Uh, you know again i can't speak to what that i've never been a doctor in the u.s without insurance because i'm i've been lucky Again, this is all to say, if you are going to go the digital nomad route and you don't have a set employer that provides things like healthcare, that provides things like retirement plans and that sort of stuff, make sure that you figure that out before you go. Yeah, you definitely want to figure it out. But if you aren't with a set employer, you do have more freedom. That's true. Your employer could call you back at any point. You know, that's a big point of issue right now in the United States. Companies are trying to get people back in. People don't really want to go. And... Without a set employer, if you're just working your own freelance, you have the option of staying where you want for however long you want. And that's one of the big pluses, and a lot of people are trying to do that right now. It's competitive, and it, but also know that it probably won't pay nearly as well, maybe. I, I, you know, I, I should do a bit more research on that. I don't it know. It depends on the field. It depends on the field. Um, yeah. 
but some of the sites that we mentioned like um, freelancer upwork indeed which has a remote option now um, and some of the more popular job sites are probably a good place to start yeah there's a couple more that I can't remember off the top of my head I had a list but I I don't remember off the top of my head so let's go into the more structured ways in which people become expats we've talked about Travelers, we've talked about freelancers, we've talked about digital nomads. Well, what else is out there? Let's pause. Let's go. So one of the things you want to talk about too is retirees. Oh, yes. People do move to other countries as retirees. Um, and at least as, from an American standpoint, there's a few countries that they tend to move to. Portugal, Costa Rica, uh, Panama, maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't know where else. Bahamas? I'm not sure about that. So those three anyway. Portugal, Costa Rica, Panama, and... People tend to live there full time, but that also requires usually an investment. Um, in Portugal, I believe you have to buy property. In a lot of places, you have to buy property, but you do, um, but you are awarded residency as as a result of that, um, which in some places gives you access to some of the public services like healthcare, which is kind of an advantage, um, and you still have access to your retirement income from your country of origin. Yeah. Uh, one thing you want to be aware of, though, too, is some countries, as non-citizens, don't allow you to buy property if you want to buy somewhere. China, Thailand. Philippines. Philippines. You need to be or married to a citizen in order to buy land and property there. Other countries like Costa Rica, Panama, Portugal, Japan, they don't worry about it as much. And, um, but some of those, you know, the countries that you might consider more expensive, like Portugal and Japan, do require a much more significant um, investment, investment in order to be able to do so. It doesn't mean it's impossible. Portugal is one of the best places to go for retirement. But just know that it's going to be a bit more expensive than, say, Thailand or somewhere else in Southeast Asia or Central America. So Yeah. For the most part... What we've seen is that retirees really do go to retire. Maybe they might volunteer in the community, work in a passion project, something like that. But you do have the odd retiree that works and maybe sets up a shop or a restaurant or something like that or goes into teaching English or something like that. It depends on the loss of the country and how old you can be and still work. But that's also a way in which people become expatriates once they retire and they have a little bit more freedom and have a little bit of a basis of a steady income, then they feel like they can go elsewhere and pursue a passion that maybe they weren't able to pursue earlier in life. Yeah, they've also, for the most part, uh, planned things out pretty well to the point where they have a nice financial cushion uh, so that they, should they not get retirement, should something else, they have enough saved up to be able to survive. So... But one of the benefits of that is, should you be older and you can go to Spain, Italy, Portugal, for example, you do qualify for that residency, which means you do qualify for their um, health insurance, their universal health insurance, which is pretty nice because as you get older and you don't no longer have an employer, at least in the United States, you're going to pay a lot, which is frustrating. And of course, we know that one of the main reasons why a lot of people become expatriates as retirees is because in many parts of the world the cost of living is significantly lower yeah especially if you want to live in a city um if you live in a city closer to hospitals and healthcare, airports airports but you know as you get older i know people worry about 
if something happens, how quickly can they get to a doctor? And in the United States, the cheaper places are more rural, and that can be tricky. It can be. I mean, there's there are parts of the U.S. where there aren't any major hospitals, or it might be a couple of weeks or a couple of months wait to see a specialist. So being in maybe a slightly larger city abroad where access to a doctor might be easier could be attractive for a retiree. Yeah. That being said, with some of the universal health countries, the elective procedures do occasionally have long wait times uh, because they don't take precedence. You're not paying for it, but they can take a year or two is, what I, is my understanding. So just know that as well. All right, so we can talk about a bit more of the structured formats. Let's go. Okay, well, all right. So before we talk about international teaching, we can talk briefly or a little bit about English teaching, which is structured to, a, to an extent. Yeah. There are a ton of people who go, younger people tend to do it most, go out and teach English. We've had plenty of friends who've done it. Um, and the biggest areas for this tend to be Asia. Yes. So you're going to see, um, or you might hear experiences from um, young college graduates that do this. Maybe go to Japan, maybe go to Korea, um, or other countries in East Asia. I'm not sure how much China is allowing this anymore, um, because I do know that some of their after-school programs have changed, and some of them are a bit more restricted now. But teaching English becomes kind of for some college graduates, kind of like a way to travel, still make money, immerse themselves in another culture. So it becomes a popular option in some places. And it used to be something that people in China anyway did online. They could be in the US and do it, and they would make pretty good money. But China completely cut that off. Um, there were some huge companies that just shut down. So, you know, and that brings me sort of to my next point is that with teaching English, you really need to do your homework on the people hiring you. There are absolute horror stories of these companies bringing people over and then just essentially abandoning them. They, didn't, they may not apply for visas, which might, be, uh, might cause you to get arrested and deported. They might saddle you with unreasonable workloads. They might not pay you. They may put you up in housing that is absolutely atrocious. So when you're looking at teaching English in an international, in an international setting, really research the country and especially the company that you're looking at. Absolutely. So make sure that you are really being hired by a legitimate employer. If someone is trying to bring you over and they don't ever talk about paperwork, I would consider that a red flag. Um, I don't know about being paid in cash. In some places, I would consider that a red flag. It depends. You'd have to look up the laws and whether your type of visa, if they give you one, allows you to open a bank account. Because oftentimes your work visa as an English teacher is different than, say, our visas as international teachers. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that you want to think about when it comes to teaching English abroad is the age groups that you may mm -hmm. want to work with or not. You might be working with elementary age little kids or you might be working with adults. So depending on your comfort with teaching, one group might be better for you than another. And your experience. I had a friend in Russia who taught English to um, managers, like business managers. He made great money, but his experience had been in business back in the US and he spoke fluent Russian and English, so he taught business English to these people. They needed it because they wanted to expand their businesses, um, which isn't happening now with everything that's going on. But your background may also provide you with 
some additional opportunities into the kind of English that you can teach. Yeah. Um, you may also look at, you know, I know people go to Japan or Korea and they do essentially copywriting. Not, not even copywriting. They do editing for yes. uh, companies that want to put out English language productions, advertisements, things like that. Transcripts, um, subtitles, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, not, it's my understanding that it's not the most exciting work. Um, it may not pay the best, but it's an opportunity for you to go and live in a new country and uh, be an expatriate yeah. if you want. So I think before we come into our jobs, because that's where we have the most experience, what I think the most common thing that happens to a lot of people is their companies send them abroad. I would say that's probably more common than what we do. Yeah, probably. Especially that, now if you're working and if you're working for a multinational company. That or they work for their, their home countries and their consulates and embassies. Yeah. Which we won't really talk about. You can in the US if you want to work for your consulate and embassy, you sign up, take the foreign service officers test, and they'll essentially do the rest. You visit interview and all sorts of stuff. But um, so people tend to work for their companies. You know, we live in Shanghai, we had American families from Disney, we had Swedish families from Ikea and Volvo, we had Apple accountants, we had... We also had some parents that worked for pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies, we had a lot of Brazilian parents who uh, were pilots in China. Um, we also had, um, in some places you might also have academics that are teaching abroad in universities. So for example, NYU had a campus in Shanghai. I imagine that some of the faculty was from the US and then of course you have other um, older universities in other places like the American University in Cairo, the American University in Beirut, um, which have American faculty or had American faculty at a time. I've met American professors here in Saudi. There you go. Yeah, so I think they teach the Saudi students. I don't know what they teach, but you know, it's an, it's an option. So you'll find people from all walks of life uh, whose companies have sent them over. Yeah. And if that's something you're interested in, I, you know, that could be a huge company, um, it, like Google, Amazon. I think we have friends that work for Amazon and Liechtenstein. Can you imagine? I think it's Liechtenstein. Something like that. We also know someone who works for an American clothing company in Belgium. Um, they're a relative oh, yes. of someone of someone we know. We also um, stayed at an Airbnb once in Hong Kong from a guy that was like a pistachio importer or something like that. It was it was like a very specific goods import business, but like that was his job was like importing either dates or pistachios from the Middle East. Yeah, in Asia you'll you'll find people who run factories or maybe work as a middleman for. Uh, companies managing factories in those countries you know there's a lot of people working for car companies for tech companies who run help run factories say in China Indonesia places like that and that's their job and they bring their families over and then of course we're in the Middle East we have to talk about oil um, since here oil companies are probably the largest employers and probably the largest source of expatriate population um, all the big players in the oil industry are in Saudi Arabia, naturally because of the size of their reserves. And of course, those people come over. So because of where things are in the US, for example, you tend to have a lot of expats in Saudi Arabia be from Texas or from Oklahoma or Colorado or places where the oil industry is developed and they have experience. Yeah, you get a little less variety in terms of where people are from. Uh, well, to some extent. I mean, you still have 
European companies like Sh- uh, I don't know if Shell is here anymore. I don't think they are. I'm not sure. Total Energy is. Total is here. Uh, BP is here. Yep. Chevron. Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to think of European companies. Oh, European. Sorry. But anyway, so you still get you still get a fair mix um, of different people from you know different walks of life, and these these people also hire contractors to do different work who may not be in oil, but they're being hired by an oil company. Maybe they're uh, engineers, maybe they're architects, all sorts of different things. Yeah. So if you are in one of those fields and you want international experience, it's probably a worthy conversation to have with your HR rep. What kind of opportunities are there out there? Um, depending on the job, you might be there for a longer stint um, or, or shorter. It could probably be one, two years, or you may have the opportunity to extend. But the opportunities, as far as multinational companies go, talk to your HR rep. You never know. Yeah, and oftentimes these companies will pay for you and your family to go, depending on where. Um, because a lot of times people with families don't want to go because they have roots back home. They have you know, grandparents and brothers and sisters and cousins and these things that they don't want to separate their children from or themselves. And so if you have family, it's a great opportunity. Um, it's a chance for your kids to, you know, at least from an American perspective, to engage in new cultures and meet people from new places versus just America. Um, yeah, I would say that it's funny that you mention um, the kids factor because a lot of people um, that we meet that have children and go on an assignment abroad, they say that they want their kids to travel and see other cultures and everything else. And then when it's time to return, if they are um, one of the reasons why people typically want to return to their home countries is so that their kids are close to family again. Yeah, and it depends too, you know, sometimes as the kids go to school here, there are more and less opportunities. Um, So we'll just take that as a segue into international teaching, which is what we do and what we've been doing uh, for a long time now. Yeah, and I mean, it's a perfect segue because, of course, all of these people that come work for these companies in international assignment, well, a lot of them have children and those children go to school. Yeah, and that's what we do. So for the most part, to be an international teacher, and we'll have a whole season sort of dedicated to our next season, probably, uh, we haven't decided yet, um, to what the process is like for becoming a teacher internationally, what kinds of things to look out for, what uh, to expect, which, I mean, we talk about a little bit right now, just as expats in general. Yeah, international schools Uh, are definitely different. What the application process and the recruiting process kind of looks like. We'll talk a little bit more about all of that in an upcoming season. But for the moment, for the most part, to work in international education, you have to be certified in your home country as a teacher. Generally speaking, it helps to be uh, have a degree from a country where English is the first language. Yes, or have completed a degree in English. So my undergraduate degree, for example, was not completed in English, but I have master's degrees that are in English-speaking universities, so that helped my transition to teaching. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you're all, your degree is also from an American university. Right. Which helps. You know, we have a friend who has, he's also from the Dominican, but I believe she has a master's from the U.S. She does. Yeah. So again, those things are things to think about. Um, it is oftentimes more difficult for people from non-English speaking countries as teachers 
to come um, and work abroad as international teachers. It's not impossible by any stretch, but it is more difficult because schools tend to want to hire uh, native speakers, which is unfortunate because our students aren't native, so it's a nice mix. But sometimes the countries have restrictions on who they can and can't hire. There are certain countries, for example, if you got your teaching certificate online, your teaching degree online, you can't apply. Yeah, and so that's something that, for the most part, international schools will disclose in the recruitment process so that if you don't fit a criteria that will keep you from getting a work visa, then you're not, well, the school's not out of a teacher when they expect to have it, and you're not out of a job because of a visa restriction. So most international schools will tell you what's allowed and what's not allowed. Yeah, so, you know, coming back to, um you know, why people come about, why people go back. One of the things that parents look at with kids is, as she mentioned, people want to be closer to family. And as I was saying, there are more opportunities and fewer opportunities, depending on where you're at and what school. If you are really into athletics and you're hoping to maybe get a scholarship and go play a university in the United States, for example, then sometimes parents will take their kids back because you don't get the exposure internationally and you don't get uh, oftentimes as much competition. Yeah, so athletics international schools are definitely not the same level of competitiveness as the US, for example, and typically international schools, um, leagues or conferences have shorter seasons, not all the sports, and um, again, not as much exposure. I don't know if they're necessarily less competitive. We haven't watched much high school sports since we've been abroad, but they are less, um, there's less of a following. Yeah, you definitely. Know, in a, where I grew up in a small town, Friday night, everyone's at a football game, basketball game, volleyball game. Hawaii was the same way. High school football, high school basketball was on TV on yeah, Fridays. Yeah, everything revolved around it. You know, in the U.S., things tend to revolve around sports, um, especially at the high school and the collegiate level. International schools, there's still great programs and, and great athletes, but people are not as invested. Yeah. I think is it as a society. Yeah, sports. exactly. Um, and so it's not impossible to get an athletic scholarship if you've gone to an international school, but you're definitely not going to maybe shine as an athlete if you are really, really good, the same way that you would stand out in the U.S., for example, if you're playing for a high school football program that is really strong and D1 schools are looking at you. Or you might shine more, but no one's going to see you. Exactly. But that's another thing to notice, too, is that if you do want to come, and with children, whether it's a teacher or whatever, there are typically baseball and American football are not offered at most international schools. No. They're not simply popular enough sports. Um, you will find soccer, basketball, volleyball sort of being the mainstays of yeah. all schools. Depending on the school, you might find things like badminton and tennis, swim. Um, but that's pretty much it as far as sports go. Yeah, for the most part. So as an international teacher, you are afforded a number of things usually. So as we said, we're looking at the ways people become expats. And Let's pause for a minute. Let's talk about experience, though. Okay. What about it? Well, I mean, typically, if you're going to work in international school, you do need experience. If you come out straight out of college, having just done your student teaching, your odds of getting a full-time teaching position are going to be lower. They are lower. So, again, we'll talk more about this in an upcoming season, but there are generally 
three tiers of schools, tier one, tier two, tier three, with tier three sort of being uh, some of the maybe not well-regarded schools, not as well-regarded. Doesn't mean they're bad, but... Sometimes schools that are starting and still shaping their programs, schools that are in an adaptation process of adopting a whole new curriculum. Um, sometimes schools that come from very large companies may fall into this category depending on the company. Or schools and places where people generally don't want to go. Yeah. Um, if it's a place where it's hard to hire people, Venezuela, for example, uh, would be a place where people generally don't want to go live right now. It's difficult to hire. Yeah. So it doesn't mean you can't get a job fresh out of college. We had uh, a good friend who's been at a pretty great school for what, eight, nine years now? About nine, yeah. About nine. So it's not impossible. But you can also look at internships as well. Schools, Some schools offer one-year internships where you'll go and you will uh, shadow a grade level teacher and work with them, be kind of like a TA, but you'll, depending on the school and your, your teacher that you're working with or teachers, you might teach, you might teach planned lessons as well. Yeah. And then, so that was actually the start of my teaching career. I was an intern in our post in Korea for two years. And for the most part, I was um, doing academic support, a lot of English language support. Depending on the school, in some high school intern positions, you're working a little bit as an RA, um, helping high school students with things like their extended essays, if they do IB and that sort of thing. It just depends. I was scheduled to be an intern when I first started and then it didn't happen, I ended up going to Russia on a Fulbright instead, but... Oh, the horror. That's another story <laughs> that I will never tell. So, um, I don't know where we were. Where were we? We were at... Um, oh, boy. Anyway, so... Where's to become a teacher? Yeah, so you can, you know, you have plenty of options as an actual teacher, and you can expect that your schools will... Uh, help you with the visa process. You yeah, exactly. That Things will, that you get as a teacher, that's where we will bring you over for the most part, uh, buy you a ticket. They may or may, most schools will help you with accommodations. Um, it just depends on where you are. Western Europe school, Western European schools tend to not provide accommodations or much in the way of airfare because it's just not affordable for them. But like when you're looking at teaching English in a school, you also want to research the school itself. Yes. And the country. Look at its labor laws, well, not labor laws, but it's laws in terms of uh, visa restrictions. Uh, there are age limits in many countries. There are no age limits in many others. Um, what are the reviews of the school? Now, be cautious with that. Yes. When people post reviews, unlike hotels or something else, people tend to be salty. They tend to only focus on the bad. Yeah, so we strongly suggest that you take reviews of international schools that you find online with a grain of salt. Um, typically what happens is that when people have had a negative experience, they tend to leave reviews and sometimes those do compound. It doesn't mean that it's the wrong school for you. It means that it maybe wasn't the right school for those people. But like with a lot of things on the internet, sometimes you do find more of the negative than the positive. It doesn't mean that that's reality. Yeah. So um, I think we'll start wrapping this up. Um, but one of the things I would like to say before we go is, as you, you are considering moving abroad, Consider places you would never go before. <laughs> um, the opportunities will be amazing and you will be fascinated and have such a better time than you might have ever thought you would in a place that you would not expect. 
For the record, that is our entire track record living abroad. China was number one or number two in my no-no list. Korea wasn't super high on our list either, and Saudi Arabia wasn't in our list. We weren't really considering living here, and here we are. And we've enjoyed all three, and we're <laughs> still enjoying Saudi Arabia at the moment. We've been here less than a year, so we've enjoyed all three. Uh, the next thing that I want to say is we talked in the previous episode about culture shock. Give it time. When you go to a new country, you know, the country can be tough at first, living in a new place. Give that time. Now, if your job isn't enjoyable, that's a whole other story. That has nothing to do with culture shock. As you find in international education, working as a teacher in an international school is oftentimes very similar to working back home. You have the same kinds of meetings, you do curriculum planning, you have accreditation, at least you know if you're in a private school back home. Um, you have parent-teacher conferences, all these things that are, you know, the regular part of the grind of being a teacher. None of that goes away. Yeah, none of it goes away. Grading, all of those things. So if you find yourself in a new country as a teacher, at least, and hating it, examine if it's your employer and where you're working, what you're doing, or if it's where you're at. Usually it's going to be one or the other, not, but sometimes they compound and it ends up being both. One thing builds on the other and it snowballs and we get back into stage two where you hate everything. Yeah, and also make sure that you know, you're know you reflecting on what your expectations are um, and whether those expectations match what is realistic for what is supposed to happen at your job. Yeah, expectations are good things to have high ones but also temper at the same time. Yeah. Just so, for example, um, people that, gee, I don't know, people that move to Santo Domingo thinking that they're going to be able to go to the beach all the time. Unfortunately, there are no beaches in Santo Domingo proper. You have to drive at least 40 minutes to be able to go to the beach. And so sometimes people move to Santo Domingo and they want to go to the beach all the time and they end up disappointed. And so at that point, it's an issue of deciding, okay, well, how important is this for my overall happiness? Can I handle going to the beach on the weekends and on holidays? Or do I absolutely need to go to the beach every single day of my life to be happy? Yeah. So know that no place you go as an expat, whether it's a teacher, whether it's for a company, whether it's freelance, is going to be perfect. And every country is going to have its pros and its cons. And every job is going to have its pros and its cons. You might, you know, working for a company and get sent to, I don't know, India for working for a, some manufacturing company and find that the people you are working with, you just don't mesh. Um, or maybe you get sent to... Kazakhstan, you're like, oh, I really don't want to go. And you get there and you realize that you love the people you're working with. And, and the country. The fields and the horses, or. Well, in the country, you might Caspian say, oh, I don't, I don't want to go. Kazakhstan sounds terrible. But you get there and you're like, all right, you know what? This is actually pretty cool. And so, just what we're trying to say is be open minded and realize that nothing is going to be perfect anywhere you go. One of the things that you find more often in reviews about international schools and international posts is you have to make your own fun. It's up to you what kind of experience you have. And that holds true. It depends on the city, right? Some you know, larger cities, especially if people speak English, they say Hong Kong, there's all sorts of things you can do. Um, but if you learn to speak a little bit of the local language, that helps as well. But you do oftentimes have to make your own fun. But remember too that one of the things, one of the reasons you're coming abroad 
is because you want these experiences. You want to travel. You want to do all these things. You want to do something different. Yeah. You want to have fun stories for you to tell your kids or your kids to tell their friends back home or their family. And sometimes that means taking a risk. And traveling usually is taking a risk unless you're just going on a generic guided tour every single time, which they have their place. Don't get me wrong. They have, they their, have place. their place. But not often, in my opinion. <laughs> unless it's, you know, like just a walking tour through a city. Um, or if you want to do a museum tour, that's fine too. But if you're booking tours where they just take you spot to spot to spot, having done one, eh, it's not great. They're easily recognizable by whatever banner the tour guide has and everybody's following the little banner. But that said, if it's your first time ever going to a new country, especially if it's somewhere you're very hesitant about, taking a tour is at least a good way to get your feet wet. Yeah, so. it's a good way to see what you like, what you're interested in. And then over time, you can build more independence and really travel the way that fits your preferences the best. Yeah, my first time abroad ever, I was 20. I went to Thailand and I had some guided tours. I had just a local lady that was set up through, because I booked through AAA because it was it's what you did in the early 2000s. <laughs> and she had tours, hotels, and it was really just me and another family. So it wasn't a big tour group. And we got to go to the markets and see some fake Muay Thai boxing. And it was okay. But I also didn't get to meet a lot of people, um, things like that. And then I went to Cambodia on that same trip, had a tours. It was just me and a driver. And boy, that was interesting. <laughs> that a was story interesting. for another episode. Yeah, that was interesting. I'd forgotten about that till just now. We should, we should talk about... His name was Saul. And we he should, was a we tiny should. man and he was... We should talk about awesome stories, and terrible for sure. Anyways, so our point is that there's lots of pathways to becoming an expat, whether you are interested in doing it on your own or whether you work for someone. Now, again, you know, if you work for a little regional company, local company in the U.S., it's harder if you want to keep working for them. But there's plenty of pathways if you just look for them. Um, and the experiences can be really rewarding. So we encourage people to take that leap and step out of their comfort zones and go experience somewhere new, especially in a world where it feels like people want to close themselves off. Yeah, we seem to kind of be going in a direction where people seem to be more and more afraid of what's different and living abroad is a sure way to build tolerance to difference and open up your mind to understand that the way of living of other people and the beliefs of other people and the lifestyles of other people may not be good or bad. They might just be different. Yeah. So that's all we have for today. As usual, please leave us comments. Let us know about the audio, the video. We're, we'll come back next season with hopefully, uh, I've got some plans for improving our audio, but um, we're gonna you know, make some upgrades. With this, we're not saying that this is the end of this season. No. We are saying that we feel confident enough doing this and have more things to share that there is material for another season. There is. We've, we've, I think we've got planned three more episodes for this season. And then we'll take a, a summer break because we need the break. Not from the podcast so much, just, just a break. we got to collect some stories. We have to get a new travel experience. We've yeah. never been to Europe in the summer, so we'll definitely have some pointers on that kind of stuff. Yeah, we'll we, have some things to share come next season. Yeah, with traveling so, in your but, late 30s is different, so. But we're not done with this share. season, so as I said, <laughs> please like, subscribe, 
find us on uh, Spotify. We're at Nomadic Gregor's there. We're on YouTube and you know, on YouTube, obviously. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Nomadic Gregor's. Always Nomadic Gregor's in all our platforms. Yep. You can find us pretty much anywhere, um, except for Facebook. We don't have Facebook and probably won't, so just, no. you know, FYI. Hard pass. Or some of the other ones, Snapchat, TikTok. No. No, we're, we're too old. We're for too that. old for that stuff. So, anyways, thanks for listening. Let us Leave us comments, ask us questions, and uh, let us know what you're thinking. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.